me. Yes, all well at the back. Um, my name's Prue Keeley Davis. I'm the chair of the Sheriffs and Recorders Fund. Um, there's a leaflet about us on your chairs, so I won't explain about us in great detail, except to say that we're an um, ex-offender rehabilitation charity that's been going in Greater London for 200 years. And we're very, very pleased to see you here this evening for our debate on mental health and prisons. This is the second of our cooperative events with St. Mary Le Beau uh, for Prisons Week, which it is, in case you don't know. Um, and uh, this is the last Friday of Prisons Week. Before we start, can I do the bit of proverbial housekeeping? Afterwards, you may want, you may have noticed there are a lot of pictures around the place. These are pictures and other objects by inmates of Her Majesty's prisons of all sorts, and they're for sale. Some of them are very good. Um, all of them are the result of a lot of hard work and inspiration. The Burnbake Trust, which has mounted the exhibition, uh, works in prisons all over the country, encouraging and helping people who want to express themselves through art. I think I'm not speaking quite loud enough, but I'll put my voice up a bit. So that's one bit of housekeeping. The other is that um, these are vouchers for anyone who, after we've offered you all a drink at the end of the debate, wants to really make an evening of it. The crypt at St. Mary Le Beau is the place to be these days, and you get 10% off for anything you buy down there. So that's to encourage that. Um, last, but absolutely by no means least, I'd like to thank our two speakers, Alan Duncan and Ruth Bond, but mainly I shall leave that to, to this evening's chairman. Now, John won't pretend that, to look like Jon Snow. Um, he isn't Jon Snow, and Jon Snow isn't John Samuels and the two of them are extremely exceptional in their different ways. Jon Snow has just been sent off to Brazil um, to do something about climate change. That's the trouble with her trying to get journalists to help you with events like this. But John Samuels, QC, um, judge, member of the parole board, chair of various things, um, extremely knowledgeable, not least chair of the Prisons Education Trust, which also works in prisons, is going to do the honours for you, and I'm sure that he will do them beautifully. Thank you, John. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm by way of being a prison anorak, because I have just come out of prison today. I was in HMP Lewis today, and I got out just in time to come straight up here uh, this afternoon. I'm delighted to be the uh, substitute for Jon Snow, which gives me the opportunity just to do what I, in my anorak way, do every Friday, which is to look at prison statistics for today, Friday the 20th of November. Today, there are 84,681 people in prison. Friday, 12 months ago, there were 83,139. The only ray of good news is that the female population has fallen slightly over the last 12 months. There were more women in prison this time last year than there are today. 
I'm sure that during the course of the evening, while people will be dwelling primarily on mental health issues, it's always appropriate to consider why individuals are in prison and particularly why women with children are in prison. Now my role tonight is not to keep you from our distinguished speakers, but to introduce them. Ruth Bond is the chair of the National Federation of Women's Institutes. And I'm told that she first became a member of the Women's Institute in Barton, in Cambridgeshire. But I have not told her that I first went to the Barton Women's Institute in 1960, probably, I think, long before she became a member. I went there in my first keen year as a member of the Cambridge Union. And I had uh, an evening which was less memorable than tonight's will be. I can't remember a thing about it except <laughs> that it was the Barton Women's Institute. Ruth is a very distinguished person in her own right, but as the national chair of the Federation of Women's Institutes, she comes to this topic because uh, the Women's Institute is making a special campaign for mental health issues and those who are in prison. Prior to her present role as national chair, she was the chair of the Public Affairs Committee of the Women's Institute. So woe betide anyone who thinks that someone with that background is likely to be ill-informed. Alan Duncan is the Shadow Prisons Minister. He is an enthusiast for both politics and, I trust, his new subject area. A debater from his youth, he, unlike me, became president of his union, uh, but perhaps he, uh, unlike me, didn't start that path in the Barton Women's Institute. <coughs> he has been active, his uh, handout tells me, in achieving the recent revival of the fortunes of the Conservative Party. That, as I say, is his promotional material and not mine. I hope he will dedicate himself to the cause of prison reform as he has dedicated his uh, interest hitherto to the reform and uh, creation of a new style Conservative Party. So, Alan, you're fairly new to this area. What are your impressions of your new portfolio and what do you think needs to be done? Well, first of all, thank you for that warm introduction. Henry Kissinger was once introduced with the phrase, this is a man who needs no introduction, to which he replied, you're quite right, but no one enjoys one more than I do. So um, thank you very much for that. Um, 
I think sometimes politicians and pulpits do not go well together. It's often better that we are beneath listening than in them preaching. But tonight is an exception, and this church is famous for having two such pulpits. And I look upon Ruth not as an adversary, but perhaps as a, a fellow member of the choir. And uh, you take the high notes, I'll take the low notes, and we'll see what happens. I've been asked to give my first impressions about being the shadow pr prisons minister, having taken on the job in September. So in the course of two months, I've visited some prisons. Indeed, I have two in my own constituency, uh, one, of which, one of which nearly burnt down in April. Uh, and it is an issue that has excited me in many ways for a long time because I think politicians have put the issue of prisons and all the issues surrounding imprisonment very much into the hidden shallow shadows of political debate. Bang them up in prison, hide the problem, and somehow concentrate on other things. I want all that to change. And indeed, in becoming Shadow Prisons Minister, I've inherited a lot of thought that is already heading in that direction. Whereas normally, when you take on a job after reshuffle, you get a blank piece of paper. So there have been some very encouraging developments over the last few years, I think, in our thinking. And I'd like to hope that the issue is not one of party political fighting. It should be one where we can unite in a civilized way to work out what should be done. My impressions are still, though, that too many people in politics are treating prisons as a social dustbin. And as such, I think we're failing to meet our responsibilities to people who are often ill, ignorant, and or addicted. So we need a much broader agenda than the simple, I think, ridiculously simplistic notion that prison works. On its own, treated like that, it does not. I think, too, the governmental system at the moment is a bit of a leviathan. The great idea that the national offender management system would treat people from end to end is a, is a great notion. But at the moment, it's too big, it's too centralized, and paradoxically, in its effectiveness on the ground, its efforts are also fragmented. I want prisons which are for the correction of offenders, not just their collection. We put them in there, and we don't do enough with them when they are there. At the moment, as we've just heard the statistics, prisons are full up to the gunnels. When they are so full, there's far less you can do inside them along the lines of the rehabilitation revolution I'd like to see. It reduces imprisonment to mere incarceration, where with difficult people inside, you need to make them centers of improvement so that you can equip offenders for the future. I, will, I think it's probably true that we have actually reproduced in prison the five evils Beveridge identified when he was designing the welfare state. 
which we have striven to get rid of outside prison, but have perhaps replicated within them. Want, disease, ignorance, squalor, and idleness. Let's look at some of the, these, and the one that Ruth will concentrate most on is that of mental illness, which we're looking at tonight. Of the 85,000 who are in prison, perhaps 10 to 15,000 or even more have some identifiable mental disorder. And just to make a broad statement, roughly, you could perhaps look at 10,000 of those as primarily people with a mental illness rather than a criminal inclination. And they should be treated as such. So it may well be that what we ought to be doing is looking at that category of person and saying that prison is not the place for them at all. They should be being treated either outside the prison environment or be being treated in institutions which are designed to address mental health, not designed to be a prison. Because if you have people of mental illness in prison, many of them are not getting treated at all, the very environment is making things worse, and it treats prison as a sort of default setting for those who are mentally troublesome. They should be in secure accommodation. And what's worse, having been in prison, when they're chucked out, if there is no consequent monitoring and handling and treatment of them, they're really going to end up coming straight back in again. The same applies to drug addiction and education. Very high percentages are on drugs or have been on drugs. Very high percentages of people have abilities to, to read and write and count, which are, not in, which are less than those of an 11-year-old. And it's only if we address all of these things that we're going to be able to address reoffending. So I want busy prisons. But you can only have busy prisons if there's the capacity to do things other than just incarcerate them inside the prison. We need to prepare people for release. And we have a policy of trying to use prisons as the focal point for rehabilitating those who are inside them. But I have to say, here is my honest first impression. I'm not sure the prison is necessarily the best unit from which to apply everything that needs to be done. Think of an offender. Many will have been able to spot someone in a broken home who's been playing truant, who then gets an, gets an asbo, who is likely to become an offender and who has been known to be likely from a very early age. If you can intervene early, then you may go a long way to stopping them ever becoming an offender. But if they become an offender and they go into prison, they will be in there but not learn very much and they then maybe get moved to another prison. And when they come out, they may well have the mental health problems we're discussing, a lack of education, no money, the inability to apply for a job, and the chances are they'll go round the conveyor belt and come straight back in again. My view is that probably it's better to think of the locality, something the size of a 
council borough or twice the size of a council borough or something like that, as the unit which ought to be looking at everything from end to end with the power to try and intervene early or to tell a prison that such a person needs a program of teaching and rehabilitation. And when they come out, to say to the Housing Association, give that offender a house, or give them the training they need, or the treatment they need. And crucially, at that local level, to be able to work with all the fantastic organizations that are growing up, most of which are on a small scale, who will mentor people, train them, perhaps give them a house, perhaps give them a job. The prison is not the best unit for doing that. It is a tool of what needs to be a broader apparatus to try and look at prisoners, offenders, and would-be offenders in the round. I think it's only if we do it that way that we can properly address the problems of mental illness and the lack of education, and fundamentally, the whole problem of re-offending. We're really looking at, call it a clientele, of a few hundred thousand. We know who these people are, but I think at the moment we're letting them down. So I'd like to see a local network which can draw together all the fragmented good efforts that happen at the moment as between social services, the probation service, the NHS, and prisons themselves, so that there can be a much more coordinated approach, a multi-agency approach which is permanent in its status. So I look upon this brief as a very exciting one. Sometimes in politics you get the opportunity really to make a difference. And if we can begin to make a difference, to those who offend and then so often re-offend, we're not just helping them, we're helping the broader interests of society, but above all, we're doing what is civilized, moral, and right. Thank you very much, Alan. Now, Ruth, as I trailed in my opening remarks, <laughs> this year, the Federation of Women's Institutes has chosen as its campaign the issue of mental health and custodial sentences. Why has this struck such a chord with your members? And what do you want to see now happen? Thank you very much. Well, may I begin by saying that uh, the WI is an apolitical organization, and I want to outline not only what we want, but how we've achieved so far and why we are where we are today. And as has been said, uh, last year, in June last year, um, we began this campaign to stop the inappropriate detention of people with mental health problems. Now, this came from what we call a resolution that uh, was put forward by a member and all the campaigns we act on are put forward by the members themselves. It is a very much bottom-up organization. But this particular member felt that she want to bring it, wanted to bring it to her WI because she had lost her son at the hands of a prison system which had failed to spot his mental health problems. 
And in telling her story, it was clear that she was one of his only support points. But even her best efforts could not help him and could not get the help that he needed. And so what she did, she took it to her uh, friends, her fellow members in the Women's Institute, and um, they decided to act upon it. And that is how the resolution came forward. Unfortunately, our member's son did not uh, get the support he vitally needed, and he did commit suicide. And that is when she went to her fellow members, and it came to our AGM. It was debated by the whole organization, and almost overwhelmingly, it was decided this is something we would act upon. And the work that we've subsequently done on this, and we've called it our Care Not Custody campaign, I think it highlights the role that the voluntary sector can play, both in raising awareness of an issue and in directly supporting those who are in need. In the summer of 2008, first of all, we began by writing to uh, our MPs, all the members across the country, and it was really just to raise the issue. And then they went on to visit prisons and women's centers to compare the reality of prison life with the opportunities offered by these centers. In March of this year, we held a parliamentary reception and we brought together politicians from across the party spectrum. Uh, and here we were pushing for more diversion from prisons for those who actually don't need to be there. At the same time, of course, we have been pressing government for real reform, especially of the women's prison system, so that when they come out, they actually stay out and their families are kept together. So our members have been pushing the Department of Health to provide resources to deliver the recommendations of the Bradley Report, which indeed did highlight the dire need for more effective diversion schemes before people actually get into prison. And we've also been calling for them to act urgently to focus on the mental health needs of the female offenders and, of course, the wider effects that that has on their families. Now, our members have also been making a lot of use of their very powerful local networks to push the local health authorities to fund more diversion schemes. And actually, this needs to be a political priority for whoever is in government. Um, we are all aware of the demands on the uh, limited primary care trust budgets. And we know that mental health can fall by the wayside. And I think it is here that local voices can make a very great deal of difference uh, when it comes to decisions on priorities in funding. And so, we do very much welcome the government's comprehensive five-year action plan for improving the support that people with mental health actually get in the criminal justice system. However, we do echo the warnings of such groups as Sainsbury Centre for Mental Health when they say that clear guidance and accountability for local services is very much needed to make sure that it is going to be delivered. We know there will be possibly no more money coming from the centre to locally to deliver these services, so local services will need help, I think, in redirecting their funds, but they have to redirect them effectively. 
And unfortunately, the danger of needing everyone to work closely together is that no one then takes overall responsibility to ensure that there are some good results. So one of the questions I still pose is, who is going to take responsibility for this? Now, the voluntary sector, as represented by the WI, can certainly help, but it mustn't end up shouldering a burden which it isn't qualified or supported to do so. It can't do the work of trained medical professionals. And it's vital, I think, that the specific section on women uh, turns into a priority. Uh, that's what's in the plan, and it must be acted upon because the section promises to make women a priority in every area, especially in guidance for commissioners when they are providing local health services. And furthermore, of course, we are delighted that there will be a, a specific program uh, document for women, which is coming out next month. So this we are eagerly awaiting. Now, raising awareness and uh, pushing for policy change is not the only way that the voluntary sector groups such as us uh, can make a difference. They can also become directly involved in providing support to prisoners and to their families. Doing this is not a straightforward thing, and groups such as ours are well aware that there is a fine line between a useful support point and, shall we say, getting in the way because we are unqualified and potentially unwanted. But involvement can be very useful, and if it is well supported by other expert organizations and we have clear boundaries, then it's fine to do so. And along these lines, earlier this year, the WI was, uh, we got together with the Asher Center uh, up in um, Worcestershire, and they, together with the Ministry of Justice, and we set up a pilot project where WI members are trained to become mentors to these vulnerable women uh, in their area, of course. And uh, because they are at risk of falling back into the criminal justice system, as we heard, um, this mentoring scheme is hopefully going to help them not to. This was one of the recommendations in Baroness Corston's report about the reform of women's prison estates. And of course, we were delighted to be asked to be involved and we have volunteers in that area. And when it is all up and running, we are then going to roll it out across the country where there are other women's centers. They will receive ongoing support, we hope. And in fact, it's more than a hope, it's a necessity. Um, otherwise, it's no point in being setting up in the first place. But it is seen that by bringing the common sense um, and the attitude of life that we have in the Women's Institute to these people, it will be a help. We just hope so, we pray so. We also want to help their families in that if, if the mother or the, the daughter has a backup, then the families are also helped too. And so the scheme, along, along with our ongoing awareness raising, we're constantly doing that, it gives some idea of the voluntary uh, role, that the voluntary sector role that, that we have, um, because we're supporting families as well. I will say that whenever we do campaign on any given topic, we can be sure that the WI's main uh, request is that government departments work together. And in this care, not custody campaign, it's just the same. 
but this time we ask that all professionals within the system work together. Um, and if there is any expertise in that system, all across the board, then a problem can be solved much more quickly, shall we say. I think the outcome really of all this is that less needs to be built in bricks and mortar and more needs to be put into a system that works for the people who need it. Status quo is no longer an option and the whole of the system needs a change of mindset. We have new proposals, but I think minds have to be changed too. The Bradley report did do this and of course we do applaud the setting up of the Health and Criminal Justice Programme Board in, its, in response to it. Uh, and so we hope uh, it does well and goes forward. And just before I finish, I want to mention that we are on the cusp of setting up a women's institute in a prison. Uh, we've had the go-ahead for this, and come January, we shall be there doing just that. And with that will come a program which we call Let's Cook, which will be teaching some of the less able ones to actually cook for when they go out uh, into the world. However, to conclude, I do reiterate that we must avoid the danger of thinking that groups such as ours are a panacea to problems which actually need statutory funding and political priority. WI members can be useful, but they are not an easy solution for national or local decision makers who are looking to reorganize and prioritize. We do know that there is care in custody, but what is truly needed in many a case is care, not custody. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Ruth. Now it's your turn, and anyone who would like to make a comment or would like to put a question to our uh, speakers. Uh, the rector has got a microphone and uh, just show your hand and he will pounce upon you and plant a microphone in it. There. <coughs> yes, could I ask a question over here? You mentioned briefly, almost in passing, that you wanted to identify young people who were known to be criminals of the future and deal with them at that stage. Could you expand on that? And particularly, who will be identifying them, how, and how you're going to deal with them? This, I think, is essential and it's doable. The trouble is, nobody brings it all together. You ask any teacher, and they'll say, I can spot the four-year-old who's going to be difficult in their adult life. I know that's a bit simplistic, but you get the point. That person may have a broken home. They may have an abusing parent. They may have learning difficulties. But they will probably start by doing badly at school, possibly playing truant. And I traced it in what I said earlier, then perhaps getting an ASBO, and then probably going into a youth offender institute. And so it goes on up the ladder. But there are lots and lots of different organizations which deal with them. Social services, schools, uh, the magistrates' courts. But there's nothing that looks down from above at the whole picture and tries to appreciate early 
by getting them on the radar that some sort of coordinated intervention could stop them going from bad to worse and worse to even worse. Ruth was talking about the need of government and professionals and voluntary organizations all to work together. My impression is that all of the fantastic efforts of many different organizations are often too fragmented and don't come together. That is why I think there's a strong argument for a local organization which is empowered to bang heads together and make sure that all of the various tentacles of a governmental or voluntary apparatus can be coordinated so that they do come together. And that was basically the thesis I was trying to launch at you earlier uh, this evening. Uh, I think it is too fragmented at the moment. And uh, that, I think, is letting down the people who could otherwise be helped. And if we can get them pre-offending, then it's much better than letting them become offenders and often re-offending. Yes, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Um, I'm probably going to be in a minority here, but still. Um, I don't want to decry what you have said, which is all very, um, <clears throat> to my word, thinking very sincere and obviously. But to be honest, ladies and gentlemen, you know as well as I do, there is a cost element here. And um, uh, our speaker talked about local authorities and boroughs taking the responsibility for um, the um, uh, prisoners' reform in their local areas. Well, local councils, ladies and gentlemen, particularly in London, are stretched on their budgets. They are intent um, in keeping, say, council tax at their current levels. And obviously, to um, uh, utilize funds, to augment funds, um, would mean an extension of those budgets, which actually, uh, in current circumstances, they just cannot afford. And you can believe that there could well be a public backlash if council taxes went up. At the moment, most councils in London are freezing their budgets and therefore haven't really got the money, uh, however much they want to, to pursue the initiatives you were talking about. You may disagree with me, but um, we'll see what you... I have to say, how would you feel about six months' time, though? Will you feel the same in six months' time as you do now? I think in six months' time, I'm going to feel absolutely marvellous. <laughs> Although it's not guaranteed. <laughs> we are living in a very difficult period when it comes to money. You focused on local councils. But actually, much of this has nothing to do with local councils. Of course, the social services side does. But for instance, now that we have the NHS in prisons, uh, which I think is probably the right move, so as long as they can develop the speciality to know what to do in prisons, you're looking at a health budget rather than the local council budget. You're also looking at a police budget. But one of the things I'm trying to suggest tonight is that we devolve a lot of the large central budgets at the moment devoted to offender management and make them more local, which in my view would make them more efficient. 
because so many of the voluntary organizations who are doing such good work are on a very small scale and often a local scale. They are almost an irritant to the big central organization, but they are of massive value to a well-organized local organization. And it is bringing together everything on a local scale that matters. But the big picture also is this. The cost of not doing anything and the cost of reoffending runs into billions and billions and billions. And if you spend a little, you could save a lot. And that is the key to the sensible economics of rehabilitation. May I just say that um, a scheme such as you uh, speak of actually operates in Greater Manchester. We were hearing from uh, one or two of, of the professionals who work there in that they have this group set up, including the police, um, and it does save an awful lot of money. That is, has been going on for about a year and a half, I think, and they've found that it's been very beneficial. Lady over there. Hello. Um, firstly, Mr. Duncan, are you the Shadow Minister for Prisons, or are you the Shadow Minister for Prisons and Probation? Both. All oh, right, you didn't make that clear in your first, in your introduction. Um, London Probation works with 75,000 offenders every year, and 45,000 offenders at any one time. Next year, we're facing cuts of six million pounds. Would you be able to comment on what you think the role of probation is at a local level, and what you would do about some of the cuts that we're actually going to be facing this, for the next financial year. Uh, and before you answer that question, the questioner is a senior probation officer. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm on my best behavior. I think one of the effects of NOMS, the National Offender Management Service, is that it is prison-dominated rather than probation-dominated. And I think the balance has become so skew-if, it's become a problem. I tabled a parliamentary question the other day which asked the department, so what percentage of a probation officer's time was spent in direct contact with the people they're looking after? Uh, the government didn't really answer the question, but I dug a bit deeper, and in the end I got the answer, which was really a quarter of their time, or possibly less. Now, that rather defeats the object of probation. Of course there are forms to fill in and reports to write, but the real purpose has to be to look the person in the eye and know and understand the nature of the people you're dealing with. And again, I think that that would be enhanced if we had much smaller local structures which are coordinated, in which, in my view, the role of probation would be enhanced. I see these structures as sort of probation plus plus. It's attention to individuals in a structure that is empowered to do the sort of thing which I bet you find frustrating, which is you can't get this person a job. You can't phone up social services and demand that they are given a home. There are things like that you cannot do, which if you could, would make an enormous difference to your work. 
Uh, if I'm wrong, tell me, but that's what all the probation officers tell me, and that is where my instincts lie. Ruth, do you want to comment on that? Um, there isn't much I can say, but I do know in the whole of this, the probation service hasn't come into it very much, and I feel it's probably time it did with us, I'm saying. Um, I don't know whether there's any, anything we can do with you, but all I can say is we would very much like to have contact and work with you if you think it would be right. But thank you. That's... Hand at the back. Can't see who it belongs to. Um, Mr. Duncan, can you tell us whether the Conservative Party has any plans uh, to raise the age of Dolly Incapax? The, the age of Dolly Incapax, which was lowered to 10 some years ago. Sorry, I, I, I can't, don't understand the question. The, can you, uh, the, the age of criminal responsibility. Oh, uh, okay. Plain English always helps. There we go. Um, I have no idea if there are any plans to do that. Uh, that's more home office than me. We deal with the people who come into the system. Uh, if you want to drop me a note, you're very welcome to, but I don't have a straight answer on that. Lady in the second row here. I'm glad to be here because for the first time I've heard that prison, if I'm wrong, correct me, prison doesn't work. And also, for the first time, someone is saying that there are people mentally ill who shouldn't be there. And what are you doing? Are you going to build bricks and, uh, bricks and mortar for them or have people trained for early intervention? No, very good question. And um, you are right in your analysis of the approach I want to take. In an ideal world, with unlimited money, we would very quickly take people out of prison and put them into secure units designed for mental treatment, which are not prisons. Now, I'm not going to pretend that that can be done, you know, at the flick of my fingers or the wave of a wand. At the moment, the money isn't there. We're, if we're going to be in government, are going to inherit a very, very difficult financial situation with enormous burdens of debt. But I think there is a strong argument for increasing the open estate and the less secure estate for a lot of people who basically do not need to be in prison, but who do need supervision and care. So I think there are many steps that can be taken to reduce the prison population and address mental illness without sticking them in an unnecessarily over-secure prison situation. Uh, I can't pretend either that we have all this work. I've only been doing this for a few weeks, but I've been whizzing along quite fast. Um, so, but that is the direction in which we want to go. Um, you mentioned um, trying to create um, cooperation across the board where in the social services. Um, and I, you also have mentioned many parts of that. 
I wondered whether you've had time to start thinking about or have, are talking to your colleagues about sentencing policy in regard to prisons, because without something on that, we, we can't make much progress. No, you're absolutely right. And for a start, there are far too many indeterminate sentences. So a prisoner has no idea when they are likely to be released. We have a pol policy of wanting to have honesty in sentencing, which has a min-max, uh, so someone knows you know, the best and the worst case for their release. And we want to use that as a basis for really trying to focus on rehabilitation so that a prisoner can share in that effort and win earlier release by acquiescing to and cooperating and equipping themselves for life outside prison. Uh, and I think that would be much better than the situation we've got at the moment where people have far too little assistance in equipping themselves for life outside and no clear knowledge of the length of their sentence, even for a long, long time when they're in prison. Right in the front there, please. Um, I'm going to be asking the question on uh, essentially a theme of criminalizing the condition because we're talking about mental health and prisoners and I'll be asking for your opinion on it but judge with your um, permission may I give a bit of background because the, the background gives the context to the question my background in 81 I started off as a registered mental nurse in psychiatry in when they used to have large institutions I worked at a institution in Epsom in Surrey now closed in the housing estate. Uh, 87 joined the prison service and, and rose from officer to governor and won awards in psychiatry during my time in the prison service. Now at the bar because of what I saw in the prison service. So here's my, my question and it's an opinion from Ruth and perhaps a bit more of a political question for yourself, um, uh, Mr. Duncan, and that is this. And I can, I can say from the coalface today, if I may use a, a, perhaps a case in question, earlier this year I represented an individual who had learning difficulties at Maidstone Crown Court, and he was made the subject of a hospital order. I saw him in court today, charged with another matter. So criminalizing the condition is the theme of the question. Somebody who has such learning difficulties that he is deemed not to be criminal but it finds himself within the criminal justice system. So my question is an opinion from Ruth on criminalizing the condition. Why are we still doing it? And to Mr. Duncan, what perhaps, uh, assuming that conservatives get in on the next occasion, um, his party will do about criminalizing the condition and perhaps by way of um, give an indication of my opinion about how you can stop criminalizing the condition is diversion schemes in magistrates courts mm -hmm. which don't exist or, or exist on a very limited basis I should say at places like Bexley magistrates so back to the question so I feel that Ruth's been kept out of it but Ruth your opinion on criminalizing the condition what can be done about it well I think it's appallingly sad that it gets that these people become criminals in inverted commas, because so often if they have had, or if they were having the continuing care that they needed, it, they wouldn't get to that. 
I have worked with personally with, with several people like that. And the instance was this poor gentleman just picked something up off a counter. He didn't realize he was stealing. And, and yes, he, was, he went before the magistrates. Um, he wasn't put into prison, but he was put on probation. And I, I think we need to have more care, more complete care, uh, where they are, in their homes, in the community, or whatever. But I think it's appalling that we are still criminalizing these people, and that, that is my opinion. Yeah, I mean, in a way, this is what I've been saying all evening, that we have to recognize um, that a lot of people who are in prison are really there because they are mentally ill. And there's a very difficult borderline when they create, you know, when they break the law, are caught doing something, uh, about whether this is a problem of mental care or a problem of criminality. Now, I don't think there's any straightforward rule of thumb here, but I passionately believe that if you are to have a fair, just, and civilized system, you have to treat everybody and every case as an individual. And uh, I think that if there is a change of emphasis, which all, instead of always looking uh, at just prosecuting things like this, openly admits and says, as a matter of policy and recognition, that an enormous fraction of people currently in prison should be treated as mental patients rather than as criminals, we're not gonna make any difference at all. So that shift of emphasis, I hope, will open up the option for them in court to be treated differently and also to press politicians to make sure that alternatives to prison are more clearly available. It's that two-strand approach which I think is necessary. Uh, no, it's one person, one question, I'm afraid. Lady in the third row there. <coughs> The opinion polls repeatedly show that the public are actually um, have very little confidence in the prison system and think that sentences are too lenient. How will each of you communicate your plans so that that trust and confidence doesn't reduce yet further? Who would like to go first? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> how will we, how will we communicate our plans? Well, through our normal channels, literally through our membership. Um, and of course, we spend our time lobbying decision makers. And so it, it would go to whoever was um, <laughs> in charge at the time. But certainly, it's something that we would have a wide debate on. Well, we do have within the Women's Institute, both at national level and at, well, county level as well. So I think. If, if there was to be any shift, our members would be very much behind it, and the lobbying is, is the biggest force we have, I think. I think the honest answer to this is that doing it properly will take a serious dose of political courage. Because as you say, the simplistic view, lock them up, throw away the key, hang them, flog them, uh, can win easy headlines for any politician. And uh, we as politicians are often ourselves rather battered by headlines that sometimes attack us for being too lenient. But that's the sort of courage I'm certainly prepared to um, 
I hope, advocate and show in this remit, because I think, you know, in politics, uh, if you're going to do something and you think that you want to make the country more civilized, you've got to put your head above the parapet sometimes. And I hope that it can be done without being at war with tabloid newspapers, but instead appreciate that, you know, where someone is a serious criminal and needs to be in prison, of course we'll be tough on them if they're going to go around you know, beating people up, then in they go. But as we've been arguing tonight, so many people in prison could and should be better treated differently. It doesn't mean you're soft on the ones that really do pose a danger to society and perhaps really do have to be put in prison. And it's that, it's that detail and clarity of argument which it is the challenge of a politician to try and convey. And I hope I've gone some way to doing that tonight. Um, I haven't so far been attacked by the tabloid press, at, at least not for this. Um, and um, that's the way we've got to keep going. Yes, lady in the front row. Hello, my name is Pauline Crow. I'm from Prisoners Abroad, and I was delighted to hear your comments about the probation service and, and how perhaps you're going to strengthen uh, or re-strengthen its position. Um, and I'd like to ask both speakers whether you believe that people who are returning from a prison sentence overseas, um, of whom we have probably 600 to 1,000 a year returning to the UK, um, as ex-offenders, should they be receiving the same level of support that ex-offenders in the UK do? And they are, of course, free at the end of their sentence. Well, I would say yes, because we are all equal. Um, and if we are supporting the ones who are in prison here, certainly when they're coming home, as it were, I would say yes, completely. Uh, my view would also be yes, or but... I mean, my fantastic local model wouldn't easily have them on the radar. Uh, so let's not <laughs> pretend that um, uh, knowing all their circumstances and being able to treat them as, 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 as well as I'd like to see is going to be as easy in those circumstances. Um, but yes, I I in terms of trying to uh, equip them to get a job again and a house and all that, they, they should be treated with the same attention as if they had been imprisoned uh, in the United Kingdom. Yep. I've got the unenviable task of having on the instructions of the rector to bring matters to a close, <coughs> because I know you all want to pursue interesting questions. So I'm going to ask our two speakers shortly to sum up what they have heard tonight my personal perception is that there isn't a huge difference between their particular perspectives. But they will identify now whether I'm right or wrong, and I'll ask Alan to start off. Judge, thank you very much. So far, I, I do not appear to have attracted a slow hand clap from the Women's Institute. This is very good news. Um, <laughs> I think if I were to sum up what I'm trying to convey tonight, is it is that thinking uh, in the Conservative Party has gone a long way over the last few years. I think it has become uh, more enlightened, uh, far more understanding of the broader needs of offenders and uh, re-offenders. 
it understands far better the limitations that prison can offer to solving the problem and is focused on a, a new emphasis of rehabilitating people, hopefully stopping them uh, in the first place from becoming offenders, but to treating people as individuals for the condition they face, be it illness, be it ignorance, be it addiction, or be it indeed their criminal intent. And I think that that broader, what I re would regard as a much more civilized approach to the whole area is one which I hope we'll get the chance to apply in government next year. Thank you. Well, our whole campaign is summed up really by saying that everybody is important and everybody is equal and should have uh, an equal say. Um, the way that we are treating our mentally ill um, people in this country is very sad. And it is a sad indictment that we've had to bring this, this resolution and hence this campaign. However, I do feel that if we um, put all our uh, energies into, into helping, into wanting to, to make the difference to keeping these people out of prison, and in fact to have a system whereby prison isn't the first option, uh, then we can all go a long way to, to sleep easier in our beds, I think. I think we have to have a, it's a, it's a case of conscience on all this because it really is there, but for the grace of God sometimes. And to have care for the people in this country is of paramount importance. And uh, to keep them out of prison where there are far too many people who should not be there is the aim. And I hope that with all the, the new legislation and the new reports, this is something that will happen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've had a splendid discussion preceded by two most interesting points of view from our speakers tonight. Can I, in drawing matters to a close, note that there are lots more questions that you want to raise. I pay tribute to the fact that in Prisons Week, so many of you are here, which show that you care, and that is hugely important. I don't want you to leave here without taking a proper opportunity to see the works of art that are here from the Burnbake Trust who support art in prison. Uh, to do take advantage of what you see here. And my own trust, I can say, put in this plug, have probably provided the art materials that produce the works of art. <coughs> can it can I just conclude by saying two things? The first is that on Monday of this week, I was asked to and did speak to 250 boys in school on the topic of why do we keep people in prison? I thought that was going to be absolutely terrifying, but to my great delight, I got a huge number of interested questions, and the boys actually wanted to persist in their questions rather than going to have their lunch. So I started the week with a very interesting occasion and I'm concluding the week with an equally interesting occasion. So I'm very grateful for that. But may I now thank our two speakers on your behalf and perhaps you will all show your appreciation of this interesting evening.